Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. We continue our refutation of Michael Brown's opening statement by addressing some alleged pre-existence texts in John 17, 5, 12, 41, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, and Matthew 23, 37. Lastly, we spend some considerable time working through Hebrews 1, giving special attention to verses 8 and 10. To help you follow along, I have the relevant portion of the manuscript Brown used for his opening statement on the show notes for this episode, accessible at restitutio.org. Here now is episode 161, Refuting Michael Brown's Case for the Trinity, Part 3. Today we're continuing on with part three in our series refuting Michael Brown's opening statement, and here is the next part. There are other texts which explicitly point to the Son's eternal preexistence. In John 17, 5, Jesus prays to the Father, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Once again, the text is clear. John also tells us in chapter 12 that when Isaiah saw the Lord's glory, meaning Yahweh in his glory, in Isaiah 6, it was the Son of God he saw, the one who suffers and dies in Isaiah 53. Isaiah saw the Son of God, and the Son was called Yahweh. Here we hear two quick arguments that Brown makes, one on the basis of John 17, 5, stating that this text, in his words, is clear, that the Son has eternal preexistence. And then the second one is in John chapter 12, 41, when the Gospel of John says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, that this text here indicates that Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne, and on the strength of that, the Son is here called Yahweh. So these are, these are two arguments that Brown makes that we want to at least briefly touch upon before going on to some of his bigger points that he makes in Philippians 2 and Hebrews chapter 1. But to begin, in John 17, verse 5, we read, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This verse does not say the word eternity. It does not say that Jesus existed with the Father in eternity or that uh, he had always existed. What it says is that he's asking to receive his glory. Now, even just that statement by itself, think about that for a moment. Can you imagine God himself asking to receive glory? Glory is a base property of God's nature. And if the Son is supposed to be of the same nature, of the same substance, of the same essence or being, and that that being is glorious, then I don't see how the Trinity could possibly be true at this point in John 17 when Jesus is asking for glory. There are really two interpretations, competing interpretations for John 17, 5. One is to say that Jesus 
literally or physically in some sense, had glory with the Father before the universe came into existence. And in that scenario, it could just as well be that the Son was eternal or that the Son was not eternal. Either way is, is totally possible on that reading. So if you go with the literal preexistence here, it still says nothing about the eternality of the Son. It could just as well be that Christ was the firstborn of God's creation, the first one that God brought into existence, and then through whom he created the universe. That is a possibility. Or it could be possible that he always existed in some sort of Trinitarian way. So those are, those are two possibilities. A third possibility, however, is that Jesus is talking about having it in prospect or having it as a promise that God had foreordained that the Messiah would have this glory. And we certainly do get that notion in a number of scriptures that prophesy about how the Messiah will be glorified. One verse that comes to mind in particular is Psalm 8, which we know is talking about humanity in general, but it gets applied in Hebrews chapter 2 specifically to Jesus as the one who's been crowned with glory and honor and how all things have been subjected to him. And this is certainly something that we see in the kingdom age that the Messiah has this glory. And Jesus is now asking for this glory. The glory is something that was promised. And he says, I had it with you. I had it with you in promise before the world existed, that there would be this son, this Messiah, this Redeemer, this prototypical human being who would serve God and through whom God would rule over the world. You know, Brown tries to make this argument from John 17 here for the son's eternal preexistence, but actually you have to presuppose that in order to uh, make the argument, because it's not part of John 17, you know, and I'd have to say that I side with the idea of um, ideal preexistence here in John's mind when he talks about the glory that he had with God um, in the sense of an ideal um, perspective or a notional perspective that there was this glory that God had in mind that he was going to give to the Messiah. And we see this in a couple of different places. You know, first it brings me to think about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it's talking about this secret or hidden wisdom of God. Paul says that uh, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, uh, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory that there was glory that God had in mind before the ages even began, this, this secret plan of God to be revealed in his creation. Because in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul also says that all of creation groans waiting for the, to be revealed the sons of God for glory. In verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. There's this glory God had in mind, an ideal glory for us that he was going to bestow upon us at the right time when his secret plan would come to its final culmination. And, and that actually has occurred in the coming of Christ and us being united with Christ and receiving the glory in part now and then in whole or ultimately at his return when we receive our resurrected bodies. And that's the glory that Jesus saw when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration as well, that God has this plan to bring together all of creation and glorify it. And that because when they, when they are glorified, then he is glorified. Also, I remember a record in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
In verse 18, it says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times for you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, God had this plan and the glory he had in mind for the Messiah and for creation was always with him. But it was in the, it's in the end times now at the appearance of Christ who's come and has died upon the cross in utter, complete obedience to the will of God that that glory has now been given to him and has been given to those who believe in him. Yeah, and glory is definitely, as I mentioned before, an interesting concept in the, in the Gospel of John. I mean, even in the same chapter in verse 22, Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. So in verse 5, he's saying, can you glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was? And then now he's saying that he's already given him the glory and he's given it to them. And I think all of this is in, is in prospect. It's all promises. The people don't have the glory yet. You, as you already mentioned, Jerry, in those excellent tie-in verses, this is something that we are waiting for the last day to be revealed, this glory. Let's use this as an opportunity to transition into chapter 12. Well, for those of you who listened to the debate and Tuggy's post-debate review, there was a line in there where Tuggy actually addressed John 12, and he said... He thought I should be uh, addressing every single one of his texts. I didn't want to address every single one of his texts. You know, he threw out John 12, and I just think, you know, his reading of that is just an obvious overreading. And he threw out other verses that just aren't a problem for me, or verses where there's a translation difficulty... I didn't want to get bogged down in all the details. I wanted to make clear that his view, his theory is problematic. He didn't see it as a problem whatsoever. But just so that we are somewhat thorough in this, uh, I just wanted to mention the flow of thought here. What we have in verse 37 is a summary statement, a very Johannine typical summary statement where it says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, what Brown and James White and a number of other Trinitarian apologists have said here is that this statement in verse 41 where it says Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him is going back to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 where Isaiah sees Yahweh the Lord of hosts high and lifted up and his, the train of his robe fills the temple with glory and that what John is saying is that Isaiah really saw Jesus okay this is a very strained reading of the text. I mean, it is true that Isaiah 6, the very end of Isaiah 6, is quoted in the previous verse, verse 40. But it's also true that just two verses before that, in, this, in the same section here of John, Isaiah 53 is quoted. Now, 
What is John actually talking about here? John's talking about how Jesus' opponents are rejecting him. And Isaiah prophesied of the glory of Christ. He saw it in a vision. Isaiah had many visions. I mean, Isaiah 6 itself is a vision, right? Um, and what we have here is really two texts. We have Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, quoted, followed by Isaiah 6, 10. And notice that both of the quotations are about Jesus getting rejected. They're not about Jesus appearing in this like bright, dazzling array on a throne. There's nothing like that at all. What, what, what Isaiah saw was in his own ministry was that the people were going to reject him and his own commissioning at the end of chapter 6. Jesus applies that text to his own ministry as well several times throughout the Gospels where people are rejecting him just like they had rejected Isaiah. And then Isaiah 53, of course, is where the people reject the Messiah or the servant of God, the servant of Yahweh. Now, here's one last critical factor to take into consideration. In the Septuagint version, which is what John often quotes from, there is actually extra glory. And it, it comes in in chapter 52, verse 13, where it says, Behold, my servant shall understand and be exalted and glorified exceedingly. As many shall be amazed at you, so shall your face be without glory from men. For your glory shall not be honored by the sons of men. In that version, we do actually have the word glory there, and it's specifically associated with the suffering of the servant of Yahweh. It's also associated with seeing God on his throne, but that's not the context of John chapter 12. So I don't think what John 12, 41 is doing is trying to say that Isaiah really saw Jesus on the throne and Jesus and Yahweh are the same because that's just not the context here. You're overreading that. You're, you're reading that into it rather than just understanding it within its context. And there is a sense in which Jesus' glorification begins the moment he allows himself to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because from then on, it's a straight line to his exaltation because everything is in line and he is now committed and he is he's going to go through with it. What do you think, Jerry? Down in verse um, 41 where it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. And John records Jesus using this language previously when he talked about Abraham, that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. You know, seeing something doesn't refer to having this uh, literal uh, encounter like a theophany or something like that where it's actually experienced, but in what we would call the mind's eye or in the foresight. You know, uh, there's another passage in Acts chapter 2 when Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he talks about David, uh, David the prophet, that when God had sworn an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, it says, seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. Well, he didn't see the resurrection of the Messiah. He didn't see Jesus. He saw it in his mind's eye. He saw it as a prophetic fulfillment that God would would do what he, God promised, that, God, that the oath God made was, was going to be guaranteed and that God was going to be faithful to his word. So the idea here that these unbelieving Jews that John is saying this was to fulfill what Isaiah said, is that it's referring to the suffering servant of God, that the message that he brought was rejected by the people. Yeah, exactly. And we also read in John 21, 19, an interesting parallel on this word glory and glorify, that when Peter 
was prophesied by Jesus to have his hand stretched out and everything at the end of the, the, the whole gospel here. It says in parentheses, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is part of the picture that the death of someone in the service of God is itself a glory. And it's something that brings glory to God and that it has glory associated with it. Abraham saw his day. Isaiah saw his glory. And that glory that Isaiah saw over and over again, he saw lots of stuff, but in particular in Isaiah is the suffering servant songs, which over and over talk about how this one is going to suffer on behalf of the people as God's servant. So I find it so amazing that Brown quotes, I mean, this is a drive-by here. Uh, we've been using this machine gun metaphor since the beginning. Uh, but, you know, I mean, in really two sentences, Brown makes his case that the Son is Yahweh on the basis of this text. And it is just not at all what it, what it means when you read it within its own context. Let's move on to the next one. That's why Paul tells us explicitly in Philippians 2 that Jesus existed in the form of God, yet emptied himself and became a servant, dying for us. And that's why Paul uses a text speaking of Yahweh in Isaiah 45, 23, where God swears that every knee will bow to him and every tongue swear to him and applies the verse to Jesus, saying that every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. If the Son is not deity, that's blasphemous, and it cannot possibly be to the glory of the Father. Just think if the verse were referred to an angel rather than Yahweh, it, it's unimaginable. Note also that Paul uses the example of Jesus in Philippians as an example of humility. He didn't take what rightly belonged to him, namely the privileges of deity, but rather emptied himself on our behalf. He who was eternally God came to earth as a servant to die for us. That's why Jesus said that he often longed to have mercy on Jerusalem, but it was not willing. Matthew 23. He was the one wooing his people throughout Old Testament times. This argument here is a bit convoluted. It seems like he's saying that because everyone bows the knee to Christ in Philippians 2.10 and 11, that as a result of that and the fact that Isaiah 45.23 says the same thing about God, Jesus therefore must be God because if he's not deity, it would be blasphemous to praise Jesus in this way. But this is to miss the simple, <laughs> the simple text itself. I mean, so many times you just read the text and you're like, oh, okay, I got it. And suddenly Brown's case evaporates like mist in the morning sun. It says in Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, does this not just make perfect sense that the, the Father, that God himself has exalted his Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, to this role, to this level, and commanded that every knee should bow to him? in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus is God. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that, does it? No, it says uh, that every tongue would confess that Jesus is the almighty, preexistent, eternal Son. 
Oh, wait, it doesn't say that either. It says that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord means ruler, master, sovereign, to the glory of God the Father. I mean, there it is. It's so beautiful. It's so clearly laid out. God is exalting his son to a status, commanding everyone else to recognize that status. And that status is Christ or Lord. Just like on the day of Pentecost, when the apostle Peter says, let all the house of Israel know for certain. And this is in in the context of God exalting him to his right hand and making his enemies his footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this is this is not a foreign idea to Christianity that God exalts and elevates his son to the highest position in all of the universe besides himself obviously. He's at God's right hand, the exalter as Paul is at pains to point out in 1 Corinthians 15:28 that even in exalting Christ God remains supreme and that there is ultimately a subordination in eternity where God himself is still superior to the Son, and that the Son will eventually hand over the rulership to the Father so that God may be all in all. So I don't, I don't see a problem here at all with this text. It, it seems to me that Brown is just collapsing once again, everything into a, a little Trinitarian box, saying that if anybody praises Jesus, oh, then he, that's blasphemy, he's got to be God. That's missing the nuance of what God can do with the human being over and over again. He says, oh, this is beyond the boundaries of what God could do with a human. It's beyond the boundaries of what God could do with an angel. He must be in the, in the classification of deity for him to receive this level of honor, respect, adoration, and so on. But that's not the case. The Bible is not making that point. That's Brown making that point. So I don't, I don't feel like I need to agree with him on that because the scripture describes this concept of indirect worship that even in their bowing the knee to Jesus, even in their confessing that he is Lord, it's still giving glory to God the Father who made him Lord. I want to go back to verse 6, which begins this uh, passage called the Carmen Christi, or the hymn to Christ, and, and talk about a few of the, the problems here uh, with looking at it from Brown's perspective. In verse 6, it says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Brown seems to think that this expression here that uh, Jesus uh, was in the form of God uh, means that he was eternally pre-existent as God himself. The point of the passage is not to point out Jesus being God, but to point out the way that Jesus is the ultimate servant from Isaiah 53. And so to empty himself and to take the form of a servant, see, the form of God and the form of a servant are being contrasted here. And there's been a long-standing debate over this one word of, of to uh, a thing to be grasped, this um, harpagmas Greek word, uh, which is very difficult uh, to define, and scholars have, have been at pains to try to understand it. But uh, N.T. Wright wrote a fantastic paper on this uh, a number of years ago, uh, coming to the conclusion that it talks about an object at which somebody tries to grasp at. And it actually doesn't mean something that somebody has currently, but then doesn't use for their for their own sake. And so uh, I just think that Brown just takes this thing, this very difficult passage for granted as though he has this understanding that it must be referring to the incarnation of Jesus as being God. Yeah, there are two senses there that I've heard. There's the one camp that says it means to grasp for what you don't have. 
And the other is that you don't hold on to what you already have. You're saying that N.T. Wright made the case that the former is more appropriate, that he's not reaching for it. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, and there's other scholars who uh, openly attest that uh, this verse here in, in Philippians 2.6 isn't talking about uh, the ontological state of Christ. Right. That's exactly that it. The actual being of Christ is not actually in question here on, on was his being human or was his being divine or deity or anything like that. This is definitely uh, about a function rather than ontology. And so the, the form of God being compared with the form of a servant, actually you can't really help but uh, pick up potential allusions here to Genesis 3 with Adam who was created in the image of God, uh, but then ended up himself becoming a servant due to his fall. And yet Christ here being the one who was also uh, born in the image of God, as Hebrews 1 tells us, and Colossians chapter 1, that he then took him on himself freely servanthood, whereas uh, he wasn't corrupted by sin and yet could have been served by God's creation, yet chose to make himself the, the servant and minister of all. And so having the prerogative, uh, but yet giving that up is a better way to explain how Christ emptied himself of the functional privileges that he could have enjoyed as the uniquely begotten son of God, rather than him being deity and then somehow giving up part of that in, in an incarnation event becoming human. Right. Well, it's also problematic for most Trinity theories to deal with this concept of giving it up anyhow. I mean, if you look at verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So on the Trinity, on the standard incarnation theories, what we have here is that he is in the form, the being, the nature, as the NIV very much over-translates this, being a very nature God, and he empties himself of his divinity and becomes a human being. This really sharply contrasts with Chalcedonian Christianity that we find in the middle of the 5th century, this whole idea of the dual natures of Christ, that they're not separated nor mixed together, how, how he is, in our modern parlance, 100% God and 100% man the whole time, and that he just sort of veils his divine attributes. Well, that's not what this is saying. And it's interesting because Brown really does take a kenosis position on Philippians 2, which is not orthodox from, from my understanding. I mean, look, once again, I'm not making the rules for what Trinitarians consider orthodox, but if he emptied himself of the form of God, it's not just the privileges of deity we're talking about here. Philippians 2, if you want to take that position on it, that it, that it, it like the NIV translates it, it says it's in the very nature God, that's precisely what he empties himself of, and he doesn't have any more. If you want to read it that way, go ahead. He's just become a full human being and not God at all anymore. One other th uh, quick thing to point out here, Jerry, is that Brown says, he who was eternally God came to earth as a servant to die for us. Once again, he's, he's reading in this presupposition of eternality into the text. Philippians 2 does not ever use the word eternal. It just says that he existed in the form of God. That's all it says. It doesn't say he always existed in that form or that he never didn't exist before that. It just says he existed. Look, I have a pencil. That pencil existed in my drawer. 
Does that mean that that pencil is infinitely old? Of course not. So once again, we have a non sequitur. We have Brown using text, using text to prove that the sun is eternal when those texts don't say anything about the age of the sun. Yeah, that present participle who parchon there, Jesus being in the form of God. Uh, so I think that Brown just misreads this. And this is actually, you know, it's a technical uh, passage. A lot has been written on this passage. One more thing to look at real quick here, Sean, before we move on is Brown throws in this curveball here of Matthew 23:37 out of nowhere. Like he doesn't even explain a connection to it, but just goes right in and say, well, that's why Jesus says that he often longed to have mercy on Jerusalem, but was not willing. That's uh, Matthew 23:37. Um, he was the one wooing his people throughout Old Testament times. Well, actually, in Matthew 23:37, this is a, a reference to the idea of a, of a hen wanting to gather her chicks uh, underneath of her for protection. We'll see that in like some of the Psalms and, and in Isaiah as well. It basically is depicting uh, Yahweh's uh, protection desire for Israel. Jesus is weeping over this, not because he's Yahweh of the Old Testament wanting to protect Israel, but because Jerusalem, the place where God's presence dwelled in the temple, that God's people there had rejected his Messiah. And by rejecting his Messiah was rejecting God's provision for them. And, and, th and Jesus was weeping over this fact that God has come to his people and the the one that God has anointed has finally arrived and yet his people reject him and ultimately then kill him. You know, so I just, I don't know what Brown is really thinking, trying to pull, pull Philippians two and then swing this text from Matthew 23 out of nowhere. Yes. I completely agree with your astonishment here, Jerry. Um, Jesus says here that he, uh, throughout his ministry, probably even throughout his life, wanted to help the people of Jerusalem to return to Yahweh, to return to God, and to accept what God was doing right in front of them. And they were rejecting it over and over again. And so Jesus was often wanting them to do that, and they, they weren't willing. And what this has to do with pre-existence, only Brown knows, because I honestly have no idea. But I do want to make the point that over and again, the rhetorical power of hitting a text and then another text and then another text and be like, oh yeah, and that's what Matthew 23, 37 says, and then psh, drop right onto the next text and into Hebrews chapter one, gives the audience this impression like, oh my goodness, there are so many scriptures that support the deity of the son of God. I mean, how could Tuggy be so dumb? How could he not believe in this? How could, how could biblical Unitarians exist unless they are willfully ignorant of these verses, or they're twisting the scriptures in a diabolical sense, or they're rationalizing away all of the divine inspiration into their neat little categories. Well, let me tell you something. There is no twisting or rationalizing worse than reading pre-existence into Matthew 23, 37. I mean, seriously, that is bad. It's a bad argument. And obviously, Brown is an intelligent man, but maybe he can explain it. I have no idea what this is talking about. It, it, it wins the weak sauce argument for the whole debate. Matthew 23, 37. Let's move on to the next one and delve into Hebrews chapter one. That's why Hebrews 1, 8, quoting from Psalm 45, 7, says to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yes, the son is God and has an eternal throne. And no one in the New Testament is designated like this other than Almighty God himself. 
By the way, the plain sense of the Hebrew and Greek is apparent, and I'll gladly get into that if there's any debating of the translation. But not only so, Hebrews continues, quoting from Psalm 102, a psalm about Yahweh, the creator of the universe. Hebrews continues, quoting from Psalm 102, and applying these words to the Son. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you'll roll them up like a garment, they'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The Son is the eternal creator, the one who always was and always will be. That's what Scripture states. We don't need to play games with this text and try to make it say something it's not saying. The text clearly and indisputably speaks of the Lord creating the heavens and the earth, which will ultimately wear out, but he, the eternal Lord, will remain the same. Yet Hebrews applies this to the Son, and Psalm 102 makes frequent reference to Yahweh, yet the, the Psalm is referred to the Son in Hebrews 1. Not only so, but the Greek speaks of the Lord creating the universe in the beginning, archos. There's no denying the plain truth of these words. And Hebrews makes the consistent argument that the Son is greater than the angels, yet in first century Judaism, in the very context of these words, there is no one higher than the angels than God himself. Brown reads here Hebrews 1.8, uh, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and just looks at that saying, well, don't you see, Jesus is called God right there, and because Jesus is eternal, the eternal God. If you go back to Psalm 45, where the author of Hebrews is quoting, it, it reads, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy or gladness more than your companions. It, it just is really striking to me that Brown would take just a, a, a linguistic fallacy like because the word theos is used uh, in reference to Jesus, the son of God in Hebrews 1.8, that that must mean that he actually is God himself in the full sense of, of the word of being deity. Whereas even it's apparent and scholars readily, Old Testament scholars readily admit to this that Psalm 45, 6 and 7, the word God there is referring to a Israelite king. And this is likely a, a royal uh, psalm uh, of ascension or wedding where this is basically uh, the way that it's almost like a, a praise to the king. And, and that's why it says your throne, O God, not the, not the God of the universe, but the throne of the kingdom of Israel. And that's why in verse 7, it says, therefore, God, your God, referring to the ultimate God of the universe. So the equivalent of theos in Hebrews 1.8 back in Psalm 45 is Elohim. And it's, it's very well known that Elohim has a wide semantic range, including angels, uh, kings, and other, other people, human beings, uh, and God himself, and, and also false gods, Baal and other pagan gods as well. And so the idea that this psalm is, is somehow stating that the king of Israel is God himself, and therefore when it's applied to Jesus uh, by the author of Hebrews, that must also mean that Jesus is God himself. I just, I don't see how Brown is trying to stand upon that argument. Well, you can only stand upon that argument if you ignore the context, once again, 
of Psalm 45. If you read the entirety of Psalm 45, you will see that this is talking about an Israelite king. It's talking, and it's the, it's the court poet who is just overwhelmed with how God has blessed this king forever. And he says to him, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, ride out victoriously. In verse 4, uh, in verse 5, he says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's still speaking to the king, and he's calling the king God. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of your uprightness. And so on. Then it says, God, your God, as you've pointed out, Jerry, that even though the king is addressed here as God, there's still the supreme God above him. And so now Brown in the debate comes back and says, oh, that's two gods. That's two gods. Well, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that this king is God's representative, God's anointed one on earth doing God's will with God's people and enforcing God's law, God's Torah. Okay, so this is the embodiment of God's will on earth, and so he can be called God in this secondary sense. And it seems like Tuggy brought this up in the debate. You've, you've just mentioned that it's well known. It's in the Brown Driver and Briggs Hebrew lexicon under the entry for Elohim. It's in a number of New Testament lexicons, Greek lexicons like the Freeburg and Thayer's under the entry for Theos. So, I mean, this is not... This is not a Unitarian reading. This is just what the psalm says. And furthermore, later on in the psalm, it talks about how the daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand, this is verse 9, stands the queen in gold of Ophir. This is probably a wedding psalm where this king is Israelite king is getting married, and he's being ad- addressed in this way. You know, the, the writer of Hebrews sees this statement of rulership and kingship where this this human being human representative is called god and he sees this as an echo or a foreshadow of the ultimate king of israel jesus christ himself yeah and just to further reinforce this i mean even the the new english translation bible headed up by uh, the eminent new testament greek scholar daniel wallace their footnote says that the israelite king is clearly the addressee here as is shown in verses two through five and seven through nine and that because the Davidic king is God's vice regent on earth, the psalmist addresses him as if he were God. God energizes the king for battle and accomplishes justice through him. A similar use of hyperbole appears in Isaiah 9, 6, which we'll get to in a little bit, where the ideal Davidic king of the eschaton is given the title Mighty God. Right. And the note, uh, the, the NET note goes on to specify a number of other ancient Near Eastern examples of the same phenomenon in other cultures surrounding Israel. So this is something that we have to be careful of. Michael Brown, just like Jerry and I, live in an American culture in the 21st century, where the term God is not as flexible as it was in ancient Israel. We can't just read in our narrow definitions for what worship is or what how the word God can be used in our culture today and have all these neat little boxes between capital G and lowercase g, when we're dealing with ancient literature that doesn't have lowercase letters, doesn't have quotation marks to distinguish someone who's called God from someone who is physically God, okay? So we have to be sensitive to all that. And what Wallace's team here is saying in the New English Translation Bible on the footnote that Jerry was just reading from Psalm 45, verse 6, is that, 
This is a known phenomenon where A&E kings could be referred to as God and could be seen as in relationship to God where, the, where their God was actually in them and fighting through them on the battlefield. And this is something we see in the Hebrew Bible as well as in these other comparative literature sources. Yeah, it just is appalling to me that Brown was completely unwilling to admit the use of theos or Elohim in reference to human beings. And even when Tuggy brought that up, he just dismissed it. You know, Jesus himself made this point. It's hard to argue with the master's words, like in John chapter 10, when he says, isn't it written, referring to the Israelite judges and everything, that I said, you are gods. And so then Jesus says, if God called those to whom the word of God came, if he called them gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say that you are blaspheming to the one that the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I'm the Son of God? Uh, this was a point that Brown was just unwilling to admit to. I can't believe he hasn't heard of the principle of agency and this secondary usage of the term God, both in Hebrew and in Greek. I mean, this is not at all a biblical Unitarian perspective unique to us. I mean, this is something that's on the books and it has been there for a very long time. For example, the Brown Driver and Briggs lexicon, Hebrew lexicon, is super old. I mean, it's been there. The word God can be used to refer to those who are God's vice regents or representatives on earth. And we're going to have a later episode where I go into this in depth and really explain it in a more thorough manner. But we've got to move on to the next one here. All right, so the, the next part of what Brown brings up is that he says... Hebrews quotes Psalm 102 and applies these words to the Son. Brown concludes, The Son is the, quote, eternal creator, the one who always was and always will be. That's what the Scripture states, end quote. And then he berates anyone who might try to explain this in any way, apart from taking it at face value as Jesus being the creator and uh, the eternal Lord who created the universe in the beginning. Uh, all right, so what, what are we to do with this? Well, first of all, I want to recognize that there are at least four different ways of interpreting this. There are four options that I want to lay out for you and see what you think about them, okay? Now, this is, once again, the difference between us sitting here taking all the time in the world to explain these things and the format of the debate. Obviously, Tuggy couldn't go into explaining all the different options and, and have sort of like a cool, calm and collected consideration of what the options are. He just, he just went for what I identify here as option three and roll with that. And then Brown said that that was ridiculous and he doesn't understand how Tuggy could believe that, which is not an argument. That's just dismissing an argument. But looking at this, we have option one here, which is the option that Brown himself espouses, is that in Hebrews 1.10, when it quotes Psalm 102, and it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up, and like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end." The first option here applies that quotation to Jesus and essentially states that Jesus is Yahweh because in Psalm 102, it's the word Yahweh there. Yahweh laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And so the idea is that since Jesus 
since this text is applied to Jesus, Jesus is identified as Yahweh who created the universe. All right, so that's option number one, the option that Brown is going with. Now, moving on to option number two, this is the idea that a number of biblical Unitarians hold who believe in pre-existence. For example, Patrick Novis, who debated James White on this very text not too long ago, and I've got that audio for you on ChristianMonotheism.com. It's well worth your time to listen to. But anyhow, uh, this is the idea that Jesus is Yahweh's agent who created the universe. And so Jesus is not Yahweh, he's Yahweh's agent. And this is something that we see, it's a phenomenon we see throughout Scripture where Yahweh texts are applied to Jesus. It's not because Jesus just is Yahweh in a a, a totally equivalent manner, that there's no difference between them, like uh, there's no difference between Sean and Mr. Finnegan, okay? Those are just two ways of saying my name, right? No, that's that's not what's going on here. It's an agent. So this is where Yahweh sends the Messiah, sends the Son to do something for him. And so you could say, well, the Son did it, or you could say Yahweh did it, because he's fulfilling his Father's will. That's the whole idea of agency. So this is option number two, is that Jesus is Yahweh's agent who created the universe, and people who hold this view are going to bring in chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, In these last days he has spoken to us by a Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so it's very clear from verse 2 that it's through him he created the world. And then in verse 10 it says, You, talking to the Son, laid the foundation of the earth. Well, yes, Jesus, in this, in this view, did lay the foundation of the earth, but it was really God working through him. And so you have Jesus as the creator of the universe, but he's not Yahweh, strictly speaking. He is Yahweh's agent. All right, so that's position number two. Position number three is to say that Jesus is Yahweh's agent who created the new creation. And this is the position that Tuggy took in the debate and that Anthony Buzzard also holds. It's the idea that in verse 2, when we read, through whom he also created the world, that this is actually a poor translation. The Greek there says, the uke episen tus eonas. And you have to pardon me if you read your Greek like a German, like... Dr. Werewell does here, but my Greek sounds like the Greek people, and uh, so we can argue about that some other time. But anyhow, my point is, this phrase, through whom also he made the ages, is the direct translation for this under option number three, where Jesus is Yahweh's agent through whom he created the new creation. If you read from the top, it says... In verse 1 of Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, where is the Son there in the Old Testament? You don't see the Son in the Old Testament. God speaks through the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Daniel. These are the ones, Huldah the prophetess. These are the ones through whom God spoke to our fathers. And then verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So right from the beginning of Hebrews, we're framing what follows on the basis of what has happened in the last days. This is, for him to jump right back to Genesis creation would be kind of strange here. Uh, But he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the ages, through whom also he made this new turning of the age, because the whole idea of the ages is you have this present age, and then you have the age to come. This is something that he's already brought about in Christ. He's already brought us through 
the present age of keeping the law and the sacrifices into a new age where we're related to God through a mediator who is in heaven at God's right hand as the high priest, and then the ultimate age to come when he returns to gather his church and establish his kingdom. So that's what he's talking about here. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Two quick points here, because I don't want to go uh, all day here on this, but first of all, in chapter 1, verse 3, where it says the exact imprint of his nature... This is the word karakter, which means an impress or really a copy. This is the impression completed in order to make a coin. All right. So it's a copy of the seal itself onto the coin, which carries in it. Think of a coin now, an ancient coin. It carries in it the very nature of the seal or the die that was used to make it in the first place. Okay. So... This is what it's saying about Jesus. Now, Brown and others will want to, want to tell us when they interpret verse 3 here that he's the exact imprint of his nature. Well, God's, what's God's nature? God's nature is eternal. So therefore, the Son is eternal. I don't think so. You cannot use the word this way. If you're a copy, think of just like, forget coins for a second. Think of a copy and a photocopier today. Obviously, this is kind of a silly example, but let's just assume that the original document was eternal. It it never had a beginning. It had always existed. And now we're making a copy of that on a photocopier of this document. Is it possible that the new copy would retain the quality or nature of being eternal of the old? It's absolutely impossible. By very definition, if you make an imprint, if you make a copy, whatever that is that is imprinted or that is now copied has a beginning point. You cannot transfer eternality through copying. It just doesn't work that way. It's it's absolutely absurd. So this verse actually points in the opposite direction that because Jesus is a is an imprint or a copy of God's nature, that Jesus therefore cannot be eternal and therefore cannot be the same as Yahweh. The other point I wanted to make is in verse 4, it says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Are we talking about God here? God has become superior to the angels? I don't think so. God has always been superior to the angels. God doesn't need to become superior to the angels, but Jesus does. And then the rest of the whole chapter Right Over and over again, we have a whole catena of Old Testament quotations making the point that the Son is superior to the angels. Can you imagine making the point that God is better than the angels? You just need one line to do it. You just say, Jesus is God, and as God, he made the angels, and he's all-powerful. So, yeah, he's better than they are. I mean, there's no, there's no case to be made here, but yet... What is the author of Hebrews doing? He's laboring to make the case that the Son is superior to the angels over and over and over throughout all these texts. So why, why is he doing that? He's doing that because it's not obvious. He's doing that because Jesus is a human being, and it's not obvious that a human is superior to angels. So he has to labor at it to make that point. So when we read in verse 10, You, Lord, 
laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and like a robe you will roll them up. This option number three is saying that this is a reference to new creation, not old creation. And Brown scoffed at this, but if you look at chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And chapter 2, verse 5 is within the same context. If you take the, take your time, read through all of chapter 1, right through to chapter 2, uh, really the context goes all the way up till verse 9, I'd say, uh, before it transitions to talking about his crucifixion. But uh, if, if this is the world of which we are speaking, that Jesus is the creator of, the world to come, then this fits in with Colossians 1, with Ephesians 1, with the idea that Jesus is the co-creator of the new creation, which he is, which he is establishing already today in his church and then ultimately in the age to come. This perspective really fits in with a lot of the low Christology statements you see in the epistle of Hebrews. For example, Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of the death. So Jesus partook of the same flesh and blood. And then later on it goes on to say in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what we see here is that Jesus had to be made in every respect like his brothers. Look, if you're also God at the same time as you're a human, you are not in every respect like your brothers. I mean, Jesus was so indistinguishable from his fellow brothers that Judas had to identify him with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he, you know, he didn't have a halo effect and a, and a, a God nature that set him apart that everyone was like, oh, wow, this guy's really unusual. No, I mean, he was, he, people thought he was a human being. And so he was in every respect like his brothers, and he was tempted. Here's something else about the nature of God. God cannot be tempted. The Bible clearly says that. God cannot be tempted with evil. Jesus was tempted. In the wilderness when satan came to him and gave him all those temptations so there's a major difference there god is impeccable jesus is peccable jesus could sin it's possible that jesus could sin but he didn't and that's why the temptations were real and that's why his life and his ministry have so much and his death and his resurrection have so much value is because he could have sinned and he didn't so we see a lot of these kinds of statements in the epistle to the hebrews that jesus is uh, made in every respect like his brothers, that he is the copy of God's nature or the imprint of God's nature, the imprint of God's nature, and that he is, he's the high priest. There's, there's a very clear distinction between him and God throughout. Uh, so this is option number three to say that actually verses 10 through 12 refer to the new creation, not to the Genesis creation. But then there's option four, and that is the idea that this text, uh, Psalm 102 that's quoted here in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, actually is about the eternal Yahweh who created the universe. And it's not about the sun at all. And this is, this is a whole other position that a lot of people have taken. This is the idea that when it says in verse 8, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That that clearly states of the sun, he says. 
Whereas in verse 10, and you, Lord, clearly states that this is talking now to God. It's a change of address. And so you have two different addressees here, and they fit together because in verse 8, what it's saying is that the Son is going to rule forever, right? He has the, uh, the God-given authority, either if you take the, and there is a translation question here. I don't know why Brown said there's no debate. There is a translation question here in verse 8. It could be, your throne is God forever and ever, or your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And that works either in Hebrew or in the Greek here. But either way you take that, if you, if you see it as him being called God because he represents God as God's representative, as God's agent on the earth, who is authorized by God to have this rule in his kingdom, then you can see why it really matters in verses 10 through 12 that God is himself eternal and that even if creation itself wears out like a garment and gets rolled up at the changing of the ages, that God, who is the one that Christ represents, is eternal, his years have no end, and therefore there's a stamp on this Messiah that no matter what happens, he is going to have this authority. His kingdom is not going to have an end. And then the contrast, once again, comes in at verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And so we have this statement in verses 8 and 9 where it talks about rulership, right? And then verses 10 through 12, which suddenly talks about creation and eternity, that God is eternal. And then it comes right back into 13 and 14, talking about authority once again and sitting at the right hand and being in this position of rulership. This is a viable possibility. You have a lot of quotations throughout this chapter. And if if the whole point of chapter one is to say that Jesus is superior to the angels, why do we have to make that case if he's God? It doesn't make any sense. Like, what are we even doing here? I mean, think think of an analogy like this. You have LeBron James, the NBA star, and he comes to a high school basketball game and he's sitting there in the audience and they call him out to play. Who among the fans is going to go on making a, a case that LeBron James is superior to any one of those high school kids on that basketball court? Who's going to do that? Nobody, because he's a LeBron James. He's a pro. He's NBA. You don't need to make an argument of his superiority over some high school kids, even if they're pretty good, because he's the best, right? And that's the definition of God, right? God is the best. You don't need to go on and on and be like, well, you know, the angels weren't called the sun. So, you know, I think, I think Jesus is better than the angels. You don't need to do all that. So I, I think it really fits in with the flow of this whole thing. If Jesus is not considered to be the creator of everything in the way that Brown says here in option number one. And why in the world, this is just another last point wrapping things up here. In chapter one, verse six, why in the world would... He have to say to the angels, let all God's angels worship him. The text says this. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. If, if he's just God, like, why wouldn't the angels know that they're supposed to worship him? Why do they have to be told? I mean, you, you read all of Hebrews chapter one and all of Hebrews chapter two as one unit. You tell me what you think, because this is far from clear. So summarizing a bit, we have four options. Option one, Jesus is Yahweh who created the universe. That's Brown's position. Option two, Jesus is Yahweh's agent who created the universe. Option three, Jesus is Yahweh's agent who created the new creation. Option four, the text is about the eternal Yahweh who created the universe.
So those are the four options. It doesn't say, but of the sun, he says, you, Lord, laid the foundations in the earth in the beginning. It doesn't say that. So that's, that's why there's an ambiguity in the text and why we're talking about it. And it's not our desire to, as Brown says, play games with the text to try to make it say something it's not saying. We're not trying to play games. We're trying to understand it in light of Psalm 102, in light of the overall argument in Hebrews chapter 1, in light of the whole book of Hebrews, and in light of, of course, the rest of New Testament theology. Yeah, that was great, Sean, laying out the different type of interpretive possibilities we have here for Hebrews chapter 1. If the author's point was really to try to say that Jesus Christ was God himself, he wouldn't have to go through all these Old Testament quotes trying to show that Jesus, as the Son of God, is above the angels, because to just say that he's God himself, there is no one higher. So the argument would be would be easily made, but that's not what we see here. And I think a conclusion that basically, if you're going to stand upon this verse as being the, the place where Jesus is called God, I don't think that's a very firm foundation to stand on. Even if Jesus is the addressee here, and it's saying that he created the Genesis creation, even, even if we grant all of that, right? And there are biblical Unitarians that grant all of that. The example I, I mentioned was Patrick Navis, who maintains his position and is a biblical Unitarian you still don't necessarily have an eternal son. And I say that because if this is referring to the son, and if it's referring to Genesis creation, it says that he's eternal and you're, and you're not going to die and you're not in the, the heavens of the earth are going to wear out, but you're not going to wear out. Your days are forever. That doesn't mean that his days are forever in the past. It could be that his days are forever in the future and it would still count as eternal, but not eternal in the sense that Brown states that this text is teaching. Check out the previous episodes in this series, Refuting Brown's opening statement on restitutio.org or in your podcast app. You can also listen to the entire debate on Podcast 158, and you can check out post-debate interviews with both Michael Brown and Dale Tuggy on this podcast as well. So take a look at that. Also wanted to let you know that we got a new review. <laughs> by Ralphie J. titled Process. He writes, First, I would like to thank you for sharing this amazing platform on Christianity with the world, Sean. My daily commutes in the dreaded Los Angeles traffic received an upgrade. While listening in the car, I find myself seeking more knowledge and asking important questions to loved ones. This podcast is helping me on my spiritual journey. I'm listening from the beginning and have been loving it ever since. Excited to see I have plenty of episodes left. I highly recommend this podcast. Keep up the great work. I'm so delighted to hear that you are enjoying this podcast. Hopefully you make it all the way here to this episode where I'm giving you a shout out. I really appreciate you writing this review and hopefully this podcast can help you to discover and live out authentic Christianity, because that's really our goal here. A couple of quick comments. I can't read all of the comments that have been coming in from the recent series on refuting Michael Brown's opening statement. But first up, we have John who writes, Sean, you've never heard of the first and last as unique? Think about the Isaiah text. I am the first and I am the last, and besides me, there is no God. Even in the way that Trinitarians and Deity of Christ believers understand this text, it means unique or only one, even though they don't realize this. With them, they are seeing Jesus as that same guy, or at least he can be called the same magical title due to his being the same nature. And yet, 
what God says is very plain. With Jesus, in the relevant passages in Revelation, he's the first and last that died and came to life again. As far as the beginning and the end, the archi and the telos, isn't that very similar to Jesus being the archion and telioten of our faith? I mean, he's, he's all there. And what we look to in order to have eternal life. I think that this dovetails nicely with him being the first and the last that died and came to life again, and also with the Isaiah context where God is the first and the last, calling the generations from the beginning in the Christian age. Christ is calling them like his Father was, and his Father is through him. Jesus became the source of salvation, and I think this works well with him. I think that this also fits well with it is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, etc., being that it is through the life he laid down when that work from the Father was finished, that he receives such authority so as to become the source of salvation through faith in his resurrection from the dead. I hope this helps. If any of this was said in a previous episode, then I'm sorry as I started listening to them backwards after the Tucky Brown debate and came here to comment because I just listened to the next episode after this one where you'd said to come and comment here if we had anything to say about what Troy brought up. Much love, John. Well, John, thanks for writing in. As I've stated before, what, how I understand God speaking in the Isaiah passages in the 40s is that he is holding himself out there as the only true God over against the idols of the nations. And so he is the first, he is the last, he is the beginning, he is the end, he is the creator, and he is, is eternal. Uh, now, I, I agree with you that if you're going to apply that same term to Jesus as occurs in Revelation, that you have to take it in context. And as you rightly point out here, the context, Jesus is very clear, is that he died and he came to life again and he lives forevermore. And so it is not that he is first in the sense that he is the first being in all the universe, but that he, that he is the firstborn from the dead. And it's not that he is the last in the sense that he is the only eternal one, but no, he is the one who has received immortality from his father and will live forever. So I, I really appreciate your point there. Bill Schlegel himself also recently wrote in on this current series on refuting Michael Brown's opening statement and says, likewise, on the Alpha and Omega question, Sean and Jerry, my understanding is that the Alpha and Omega passages of Revelation 1, 8, 21, 5 to 6, 22, 12 to 13 are all concerning spoken by the Lord Yahweh Almighty the Father. Michael Brown kept referring to these passages as if they referred to or were spoken by Jesus. That is obviously not the case for the first two references. The only reference that might be in question is the third one, Revelation 22:12-13. It is not so clear who is speaking in Revelation 22:10-14, but comparing the first two references, I believe it is the Lord Yahweh Almighty who is speaking also in 12 to 13. In 1 8, the Lord God is coming, and also in 22 12 to 13. This does not necessarily have to mean through agency either, though it may, considering Revelation 21 3. In short, all the Alpha and Omega passages in Revelation refer to the Lord God. All right, Bill, thanks so much for writing in and clearing that up. We are all out of time for today. This episode's already super long, and stay tuned next time, where I hope we will be able to conclude this series on refuting Michael Brown's opening statement. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.